This is a Fuente podcast. We're finally here. We're finally here, guys. I got Unseen Realm in the mail. Sorry, I'm at the curb. Oh my God, I do this every time. I get it, went away. Um, we're going to start on Genesis 6. Um, uh, dang it. Okay, Genesis 6. Um, we finally made it, guys. I'm proud of us. Uh, thank you for sticking with me through all that apologetics nonsense. So we got um, our vocation as humans is to be in the image of God. Um, this is contrasted with uh, the Mesopotamian idea for for the creation of humans. Um, if you'll remember, the reason that humans were created and all the Mesopotamian um, stories was so that they could be uh, slaves for their gods. Actually, I want to, in speaking about that, I want to review a little bit and talk about um, that just for a second. I want to read um, a little bit from ancient Israelite literature and its cultural context. is also by John Walton. Um, just so you guys can hear a summary of the Enuma Elish, which is sort of comparable to Genesis. And when you see main themes from this and compare it to the Genesis account of the creation of man, you can go, oh, wow. Yeah, that's hugely different. This composition tells of Marduk's ascension to the head of the Babylonian pantheon. So Marduk wasn't at first the big shot, but he ends up becoming the big shot. It was recorded on seven tablets as follows. Tablet one, (coughs) cosmogony, theogony, including a long description of Marduk born in Ea and Damkina describes the discontent between the boisterous younger gods and the older gods. Apsu and Tiamat, representing sweet water and salt water, respectively, are seeking peace and quiet. When Apsu decides to respond destructively, Tiamat joins the rebel cause. Tablet 2. The older dogs un- gods unsuccessfully seek a champion to represent them against Tiamat until Marduk steps forward to accept the challenge. In exchange for his leadership, he asks to be made the head of the pantheon. Tablet 3, Marduk's proposals presented before Lamu and Lahamu, the oldest children of Apsu and Tiamat, and is accepted. Tablet 4, decrees are given to Marduk and his weapons for battle are prepared. The battle is enjoined and Marduk is victorious. Using Tiamat's corpse, Marduk lays out the cosmos. Okay, uh, That's like what we talked about in Genesis 1. Tablet 5, stars and constellations, moon, and probably the sun are arranged in the firmament. Marduk recognizes the divine realm and is proclaimed king of the gods. Tablet 6, man is created so that gods will not have to work. Kingu, the partner of Tiamat, is slain and his blood is used by Ea to form man. So they're slaves that are made out of blood from this slain god. Babylon is constructed as the first city. Uh, the last part of the tablet begins the proclamation of Marduk's 50 names by the Igigi gods. Tablet 7, the proclamation of the 50 names is completed. The work ends with an exhortation to be vigilant in praising Marduk. This is from the uh, Enuma Elish. Manuscripts are all from the first millennium BC. Estimates of the date of the composition usually center on the Kassite period. Lambert suggests a strong connection to the developments under Nebuchadnezzar I. The epic is written on seven tablets and was discovered in Ashurbanipal's library in Nineveh by Rassam in 1850. 
Fragments from the Assyrian version were found at Assur in the early 20th century. And I just wanted you guys to hear from the primary source, or at least a summary of the primary source, the claims that I've made in my Genesis 1. So, um, in strong um, comparison with that, in Ashurbanipal's library, you look at that ancient Mesopotamian idea for what a man is, and you look at the Israelite idea of being made in the image of God, which is something that was reserved for kings and applying to both men and women and men and women being created so that they can be the image of God. They can be agents on God's behalf. It's so much more empowering than being a slave so that you have to do the things that um, the gods don't want to do. And it's also um, done wholly at the uh, solicitation and desire of Yahweh and not because of the ad hoc just whim of a, of a bunch of different pantheistic gods. Okay, and then we also talked about how the serpent was sort of like a seraphim. as a throne guardian that's gone rogue. Um, he encourages these humans to seek this strong interaction with, with divinity in a way that's not in line with Yahweh's desires. So this idea of humanity and divinity mixing in the wrong way is going to come into play in a big way in Genesis 6. Um, so Nahash is that triple entendre, meaning shining, just diviner, and serpent. Um, after that, you have uh, the curse where there's going to be a future seed of the woman who's a serpent slayer. That's a big deal. You see the seed of the woman and think, oh, maybe this will be the serpent slayer. But instead, you just see murder. You see a, um, a brother killing a brother. And family feuds are a common theme in the Bible, too. You see where this brother is. Um, he's filled with envy. He sees and he takes life. It's just like seeing a fruit and taking it. Um, his uh, posterity goes on to start building a city, which is going to be. Uh, sort of parallel with with Egypt and Babylon. Uh, someone merely wounds Lamech, but Lamech kills him. He pays back uh, uh, seven times 70. We saw how Jesus kind of quotes this and talks about how that's how much we should forgive. So he's kind of this, the same way that Lamech and, and these failing seed are kind of like anti-creation Jesus is the opposite of that. He, he's restoring creation, bringing a new creation. Um, okay, but we also see from that story that the, the failures from Genesis 1 are continuing onward. Um, then we looked at some, we looked at Genesis 5, and there we're seeing, um, it's mostly just a he begot, he begot, he begot list. Um some of the big ideas there were that uh, the we see Enoch, he walks with God, and he's taken away. Um, and it's kind of interesting. There's parallels in ancient Mesopotamian literature. Um, and then we talked about Nuach being born, which is Noah, which his name means rest. Now we're ready for chapter six. And it happened as humankind began to multiply over the earth, and the daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw... The daughters of man were comely, and they took themselves wives, however they choose. They saw that it was good, and they took it. Where have we seen that language before? Huh. 
That was in the garden. How are these people in the garden tempted? Remember, the serpent says you could be like God if you like the gods if you if you eat this fruit. Here, so there you were saying humans trying to be like gods. Here you're saying gods trying to be like humans. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were comely, and they came and took themselves wives, uh, howsoever they chose. And the Lord said, My breath shall not abide in the human forever, for he is but flesh, though his days be 120 years. The Nephilim were then on the earth, and afterwards as well the sons of God, having come to bed with the daughters of man who bore them. They're the heroes of your men of renown. Okay, we'll pause there. Now, I don't know why English translations always say Nephilim, because we know what that word is, and they're not translating it. The word actually means giants. Um, and you can see this if you look in the Septuagint version. So the Septuagint was a, uh, it's an ancient Greek translation of Hebrew scriptures. I believe it dates from the third century BC. And in there, the Septuagint uses the word gigas to translate um, Nephilim. Hey, that's where we get the word giant. And then also, I was even surprised I saw this in the Spanish version. Uh, Nueva Versión Internacional And I'm going to read from that Just for a second so you can see Unirse los hijos de Dios con las hijas de los seres humanos Y tener hijos con ellas Nacieron gigantes Que fueron los famosos héroes de antaño A partir de entonces hubo gigantes en la tierra Gigantes, that's giants So the Spanish version even translates this word correctly Okay um, I'm going to look now um, even more at this the etymology of, of Nephilim. And then after that, we can return to the sons of God. For now, just know the sons of God are the divine council. I'm going to talk about why I believe that in a minute. And we'll look at Heiser. But first, I want to just camp out with this word Nephilim. Some people claim that Nephilim means fallen ones because Nafal is the Hebrew uh, verb for falling. Um, and that's none, pay, lamed. But um, if you actually look closely at the grammar of it, it's a highly technical argument. Um, this doesn't really work because in some of the places in the Bible where Nephilim's uh, mentioned, there's a yod. Um, and a yod's like a Y sound. So in Hebrew, you don't really have vowels. You only have consonants. And sometimes a consonant is used in place of a vowel. And this yod is used in this word in a place that it wouldn't make sense if it was a verbal construction. Um, I'm going to read a paragraph from Heiser. The takeaway is that the second spelling, Nephilim, with this, uh, with this yod in there, tells us that the root behind the term has a long I, or Y, in it, in it before the plural ending im was added. That in turn helps us determine that the word does not mean those who fall, if that were the case, the word would have been spelled nofelim. A translation of fallen from the verb nafal is also weakened by the Y spelling form. If the word came from the verb nafal, we'd expect uh, a spelling of nefulim uh, for fallen. Um, so where does this word actually come from? Well, the im is kind of like our S in English when we want to make something plural. In Hebrew, if you have a noun and it's masculine, uh, the ending is im to make it plural, like Elohim would be gods. And it can, that word can also be used, you know, 
singular for uh, Elohim. Um, if you wanna, if it's female, you wanna make it plural. You put a ot on the end. Okay, but, but this is Nephilim. Um, if you look at Aramaic, they have a word nafila, which means giant. If you take that word and you put it plural in Hebrew, guess what word you get? Nephilim. You get Nephilim. So I think this is actually um, an Aramaic loan word. Um, Heiser agrees. Um, and that would make sense with like later on when you see these giant clans in Exodus and the spies are scared because they feel like grasshoppers before them. And that's not the only reason this makes sense. Um, it gets weirder. So <laughs> um, there are, remember we're in, we're talking about history and there's this ancient historical background for everything we're talking about. Do we have any parallel stories that are sort of similar to this one from anywhere in the ancient Near East? The answer is yes. Yes, we do. Um, this one isn't as strong of a, of a connection, but in the ancient Greek idea of the Titans, so the Titans were these former gods, and they get into a fight with their children, the Olympians, and they have a 10-year war. And afterward, the Olympians lock up the Titans in Tartarus, which is their underworld. Okay? Um, well, that's a strange story. What does that have to do with Genesis 6? Okay. Let's start connecting some things. Um, is there any other ancient Jewish story where – okay, so let's say that these, these, these sons of God who – they have sex with these women and they have the Nephilim. If there was some place where we found where these Nephilim were locked in the underground, that would be an interesting connection. Um. So that's the one thing, this idea of these spirit beings being locked in the underworld. Um, in the Greek one, it's more tenuous, but here's something that's even more interesting. So um, ancient Mesopotamian ideology um, had an idea of what were called the Akalus. And the Akalus were these seven sages, is what they're called, and they're these spirit beings. And... I don't know if y'all knew this, but there's actually a flood in ancient Mesopotamian theology as well as in the Bible. And according to the ancient Mesopotamian ideology, there's this flood and these Akalu, after the flood, they bring knowledge of the times before the flood. And they share this knowledge with humans and help to create civilization. They also have sex with these humans and they have these giant divine half divine or beings one of whom is actually gilgamesh if you've ever heard of the epic of gilgamesh and these seven sages actually make a, a appearance in the prologue of gilgamesh they also make an appearance in the ep, uh, in the era epic um i'm going to read from heiser here in the mesopotamian flood story found in a text now known as the era epic the babylonian high god marduk punishes the evil apkalus with banishment to the subterranean waters deep inside the earth, which are known as Apsu. The Apsu was also considered part of the underworld. Marduk commanded that they never come up again. The parallels are clear and unmistakable. Well, let's see 
what it is that these bound up spirits are paralleling too, because there's nothing in Genesis six to indicate that they're paralleled. Um, and you know, I want to take the Bible seriously and look at the Bible. If only there was a place in the Bible that talked about these spirits being chained up in the underworld. Oh wait, there is. I'm going to read now from second Peter and from Jude. Okay. Uh, this is from second Peter two, one through 10. And there are also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So he's saying that there's all these false teachers and there's judgment coming for them. And then he's going to compare them to something. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world he uh, when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Um, so the, the translation in the, from the Greek for that word hell is Tartarus. Okay. We have hell in English and we think of these uh, Norwegian concepts of hell. In the Greek manuscript, it's Tartarus. Um, and... In Hebrew, it might have been Sheol. Um, that's a puzzler, too. We need to realize that Sheol, Hades, and um, Tartarus are three different places. Um, Sheol and, and Hades are more similar, I think, from reading ancient literature. Anyway, keep going. And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and behold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true, listen, of those who follow the corrupt desire of flesh and despise authority. So that, um, boy, that would sure match with this story. It talks about the flood. It talks about angels sinning. And it talks about... Um, desire of the flesh and how God judges this kind of thing. Um, wouldn't that make a whole lot of sense if these divine beings were having sex with women? <laughs> wouldn't they have a lot of explanatory power? If, I mean, apparently it looks like Peter, who, I don't know, he's kind of a big deal in Christian theology. He seemed to think that these sons of God and these Nephilim spirit beings who had sex with women and had giant babies. Um, well, how do I know that? Because, well, there's this parallel of it's a, a sin based in lust. It's spirit beings doing it and they're bound up in the underworld. And that sounds a lot like the Apkalu. Okay. Um, here's from Jude. This is Jude five through seven. Now I want to remind you, although you know everything once and for all, that Jesus having saved the people out of the land of Egypt the second time destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep to their own domain, but deserted their proper dwelling place. It's like, 
wrongly mixing divine and human. He is kept in eternal bonds under deep gloom for the day, for the judgment of the great day. At Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns around them indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire in the same way as these are exhibited as an example by undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So um, if you if you subscribe to this view of this being what Genesis 6 is about, it brings a lot of explanatory power to a lot of weird passages that all seem connected, and it fits within an ancient Mesopotamian context. So a lot of times you can tell a good hermeneutic, this hermeneutic means a tool for understanding an ancient piece of literature, because it brings light to a bunch of other pieces of literature, and it fits within the historical context. Um, that test applied to this situation makes a ton of sense, but it doesn't even stop there. Um, there's a whole bunch of references and with these two parts of the Bible and in ancient Second Temple Jewish literature to what's called the Book of Enoch. And the Book of Enoch talks about Genesis 6, and it talks about this story where these heavenly beings, they're called the Watchers in Genesis 6, which, uh, side note, in the book of Daniel, the divine counsel are called watchers. Another side note, the Apkalu in ancient Mesopotamia, a lot of times little figurines of them were used and put inside of buildings to watch over the buildings. They're also called watchers. Okay, so you have Daniel calling these beings watchers. You have uh, Mesopotamian buildings calling these beings watchers. And then you have one Enoch talking about these watchers and using that term watchers to refer to the divine council coming down and having sex with women at the time of Noah and having giant babies. And then we talked about how Nephilim looks like an Aramaic cognate as the word giant. Um, and so as you see more and more of these things, they all tie together and they make so much sense. Um, so I had already been planning to divide up Genesis 6 into several parts. Um, I didn't expect, though, to be so bogged down with just Son of God and Nephilim. But I'm glad that we camped out here. This is a very confusing part of the Bible. And knowing, you know, the cultural background really, really helps. And being able to plug it into Second Peter and Jude helps to illuminate those confusing passages as well. We realize these are all part of a matrix of ideas. I think um, as Christians, we'd benefit a lot from knowing more about books like First Enoch and uh, the Arab epic and seeing what it is that an ancient Jew would see when they read this story. Um, anyway, I hope this was meaningful for you all. Um, I'll continue with Genesis 6 next time.